We're going to pick up where we left off, uh, I guess, three Sundays ago now. Uh, our current preaching series, which we've entitled Make It Count, based on the book of Philippians. And for those of you who may not have been with us on this journey over the last number of weeks, we've been talking about how Philippians was written by Paul from a prison in Rome, and that the overriding theme of Philippians is joy, and how ironic that is, since Paul is in prison during um, and this, writing this letter, and he's facing huge difficulties and hardships. In fact, he doesn't even know if he's going to be able to live or die when he's writing this letter. And so Paul's message, we have said, as he writes this letter, is simply this. If we're willing to adopt a make-it-count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we will experience joy when life does not turn out as we planned. So the first couple of sermons, the first couple of weeks, we focused on Paul and we looked at his attitude specifically in the midst of his circumstances and the benefits that, that flowed out of, that we see flow out of that type of life. The last two sermons shifted focus away from Paul personally to the believers in Philippi, and Paul is trying to help them understand that a make-it-count approach to faith calls for a context of calls for unity and calls for humility. And we looked at both of those over the last couple of times. And really, because both of those must exist together, you can't experience unity if humility is absent. Now, the last time uh, I stood here and I said to you that the scripture that we're about to consider was one of the most complex, challenging passages in the Bible, and we survived and you came back, so that's a, that's a good sign. Today's passage is actually very much the opposite. While it's really important, and uh, we're going to see that, I believe, it's a very simple, very practical section of the letter, and in this section, Paul references two people. He references Timothy and Epaphroditus. And both of them are with him in Rome, and both have been discipled and apprenticed by him. But there is, there is a difference. Timothy is a direct disciple or apprentice of Paul. Epaphroditus, on the other hand, is what we might call an indirect result of Paul's ministry. Paul planted the church that Epaphroditus came to faith in, he apprenticed the leaders that were leading the church and the people that were in that church. And now they have in turn carried on the gospel message, carried on the work of this church and the mission. And they have in turn apprenticed Epaphroditus. And so really the result is, is that Epaphroditus is the fruit of Paul's ministry. So for that reason, I say, whether directly or indirectly, Paul has had his hand in apprenticing both. Now, today we're going to consider evidence of how a make-it-account approach to faith creates and promotes an environment where apprentice-making discipleship remains the priority, the priority. Now, earlier in the service, our scripture for today was read by Mary, and so I'm not going to reread that, but if you have your Bible, you can open it to Philippians 2 and follow along verses 19 to 30. I'm going to start today with Timothy. 
It's fair to say that the Philippian church is a good church. It's a good church. It's a really good church, but it's not a perfect church. There are some problems there. There's disunity among some of the members. Not all of them, but some of them have a problem with unity. There's been a theological attack on the teachings in the church. And we see and hear from Paul that false doctrine has even been preached there. And so there's a need for someone, someone like Paul, to visit the church in Philippi and to help them to navigate their way through these issues, to, to move on from this, to get things right, and to, and, and to move forward. Now, Paul makes it clear to the Philippian church that in an ideal circumstance, in a perfect world, he would be the one coming to do this. He would be the candidate to come, and he would do it himself. Well, obviously, he's got a little problem. He's in prison. And so because of that, he has no choice but to send somebody else in his place. And so he chooses Timothy to go on his behalf. And so Paul is writing here in this letter to the Philippian church, and he's waiting to see how things will unfold with him. He just wants to wait a little longer before he sends Timothy to them. That way, they will hopefully get some good news about his situation and that he can then hear some good news back from them. Paul then goes on to build his case as to why Timothy is a good choice to represent him in Philippi. And his goal in presenting this case is that they would accept Timothy's leadership and direction when he comes as if it was he himself who was there. And so he focuses on two areas that I believe are very important in the life of a follower of Jesus. And these two areas are the product and the evidence of genuine biblical apprenticeship. Timothy has been discipled by Paul, and this is now what the product of that investment. And so Paul starts by talking about his character. Paul says, I have no one else like him. Literally translated, what Paul is saying here is, there is no one of equal soul. There is no one of equal soul. Paul and Timothy, are they differed in age. They differed in personalities. They differed in their giftings. They differed in the path that their lives have taken. Their circumstances are different. Yet they shared the same heart. They shared the same priorities. They share the same vision. They share the same commitment to the kingdom of God. They are of equal soul. And so Paul refers to his relationship with Timothy as a father-son relationship. In biblical times, it was assumed that a son would take on the trade of his father. You know, it's so different than today. Today, we sit around the dinner table or company comes over and the question is asked of our kids once they hit grade 9, 10, or whatever, you know, what do you want to be 
when you graduate or when you're younger, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or maybe even when you're older, what are you going to be when you grow up? Because it seems like that's taking an awfully long time, people. What do you want to be? The sky's the limit. You know, you can be whatever you want. Pick one. It wasn't like that in biblical times. It was assumed. The son wouldn't even think of anything different. He would take on the trade of his father. And that trade would be taught to him, not by a university or a college. It would be taught to him by his father and other members of the family. So we read scripture. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus became a carpenter. Zebedee was a fisherman. James and John, his sons, they were fishermen. Your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. If your dad was a business person and had money, then that's what you would do. The son would watch closely, learn from his father. And eventually they would reach the point of doing that the son was ready to do the work himself. He's, he's the full-fledged person now. He can do it on his own. Now, we've been talking about the son, and, you know, the reality of these days is that women, the role of women in society was very different. They were expected to be homemakers and to raise children, and they had certain responsibilities that were unique to, to women in this culture. And like the sons, the girls were taught by their mothers how to be that person um, as they moved along in their lives. The point is, is that Timothy spent a lot of time with Paul in this spiritual father-son relationship. They were in Philippi together. They were in Thessalonica together. They were in Berea. They were in Corinth. They were in Ephesus. They were in Rome together. The apprenticeship model of Paul and Timothy is the same model as Jesus with his disciples doing life together, doing ministry together, observing, learning, then trying and doing. Now, during most of this time, as we read the Scripture, Timothy has a really low profile. Not much is recorded about his contribution and his activity in comparison to many of the others. But much is happening in his development, in the shaping of his character, in his apprenticeship process. There's no one that Paul could have sent that would have been more like him in character than Timothy. And so Paul tells them that Timothy will genuinely take an interest in your welfare. He's not going to come and just do the job. He's going to care about, he's not only going to care about you, but he's going to care for you because Timothy is a person of compassion. That's the kind of person he is. And according to Paul, anyone else that he could have sent, he said they would have been focused on their own interests. But, but Timothy, he's a selfless leader. He's selfless. He's a person who puts others above himself. Now, what Paul is referencing here is what we talked about, I think, in week one or two, where there were people who were preaching the gospel, and Paul says that they are, all they were concerned about was building success for themselves. They, they weren't committed to the kingdom as a whole. They were committed to their own progression, their own praise, their own moving ahead. And Paul didn't want to send one of those, someone who would walk into the situation of this good church in Philippi that just needed some help, and send one of those people in there who's going to use this opportunity to make themselves look good? He couldn't do that. 
This is not about getting the attention and the praise of men. There are some real problems to be dealt with and only someone of reputable character who genuinely cared about them, who was willing to work alongside them would be suitable. And as far as Paul is concerned, there was no one more suited for this role, no one who demonstrated better character than the one who is his apprentice, Timothy. Secondly, Paul focuses in on his actions. Now, we're first introduced to Timothy in the book of Acts chapter 16, and we see that Paul is in Lystra, and that's where he meets Timothy. Timothy's mother is a Jew, we're told. His father is a Greek. And we find that in in Paul's letters to Timothy that it was his mother and his grandmother who were were the ones who were the most instrumental and influential in his faith development uh, as he was growing up. We know that the believers in Lystra spoke highly for him as, uh, of him as they watched his life. We know that he's young. He's very young. Because 15 years later, Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. We know from 1 Timothy that some of type of prophetic utterance confirmed his call to ministry. And in Acts 16, Paul says, Timothy, would you join our team? And he accepted and became a constant companion to Paul. We see throughout the New Testament that Timothy was willing to do whatever was needed. We see that he's willing to go wherever they were going. He is willing to be left behind when they moved on if that was what was in the best interest of the ministry at that time. And so from a very young age, Timothy has spent his life willing to sacrifice, serve the kingdom, do what needs to be done. Now, we don't know what cost that's come to. We don't know, is he married? Did he get to have children? Did he ever own a home? Did he end up imprisoned at times too? Was he mistreated like Paul was? Now, Paul says that he intends to send Timothy to dispatch him to Philippi. You can't send someone somewhere who's not willing to go. Sending is complete upon obedience. And so Paul is confident that Timothy will go to Philippi if he's sent, because that's what he's demonstrated to to Paul and the others in his life up to this point. He says, Timothy has proved himself. Timothy has proved himself. That phrase, those two words, proved himself, is a legal term which means to show evidence in your life. The activity of your life having evidence of the character that is within you. And so, not only does Timothy have the right character, but his actions are consistent with his character. And now he's ready to take action, to step up on Paul's behalf, because he's proven himself in character and in his actions as a protege, as an apprentice of Paul's to take on this task. Secondly, we have Epaphroditus. The second example Paul presents in the scripture, we said earlier, was Epaphroditus, who's an indirect uh, apprentice or disciple of Paul. Now, like Timothy, Paul also focuses on both the character and the actions of Epaphroditus. And so when talking about his character, while the verses are few, 
Paul says a great deal about the Christ-like character of Epaphroditus. Paul says he's trustworthy. The Philippian church needed someone they could trust to travel to Rome and deliver money to Paul. And Epaphroditus, when they looked around the congregation, they said, who here do we trust to do this? And they picked him. He was trustworthy. He was reliable. He was honest. And it was obvious that he would be the choice. He's sacrificial. Walking all the way from Philippi to Rome, carrying a large sum of money, it took a lot of courage. It took a lot of determination. It took perseverance. And Epaphroditus demonstrated the courage, the determination, the perseverance, because he'd made a commitment to fulfill a very important role, and he stayed true to it. Paul says he's compassionate. They needed someone who would not only show up at the prison and drop off the money and say, nice seeing you. I got to head back and catch the, you know, the next group going back home. No, his role was not just to deliver the gift, but to stay for a while and take care of Paul and his needs and to serve as an assistant to him. And so they picked Epaphroditus because he's compassionate has a servant's heart. He's selfless. Unfortunately, the impact of the journey made him really sick. In fact, Paul says he almost died and that his recovery was only because God had mercy on him. Paul is rejoicing in his recovery because if anything happened to Epaphroditus, I mean, things are already bad enough, it would have just added to his sorrow. So he's delighted that, that God raised them back up. The church in Philippi is very concerned for Epaphroditus, but when you look at the scripture, there's something really interesting here. He's more concerned about their anxiety about him than he is about his own health. In fact, he says, I want to go home. But he doesn't want to go home because he's like, you know what? I mean, think about it. When we're sick and when we're tired, we just want to go home in the comfort of home. That's not what he's asking for. He's not saying, I want to go home because it's more comfortable at home. He says, I want to go back because I need my church to see firsthand when I walk in the room that I'm okay so they can stop worrying about me. I'm worried about how they're worrying about me. And so Paul appreciates the Christ-like character that he sees demonstrated. In Epaphroditus' life, he's been discipled well. He's a phenomenal apprentice of of those who are leaders in Philippi, a man of God. And like Timothy, he talks about his actions. We're not given the details of Epaphroditus' journey of faith. It appears that he came from a pagan background, and we know that because his name is a pagan name. In fact, his name literally means the favorite of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was a pagan goddess. And so for a parent to name a child Epaphroditus would be a desire on the part of the parent that the goddess would show favor to their child. So we know he comes from a pagan background. But somewhere along the way, he's heard the gospel of Jesus and he became a follower of Jesus. He's grown to his fa- in his faith to the point that he's now a trusted member of the Philippian church. 
Now, in contrast, Paul was raised as a Jew, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the most illustrious rabbi of his day. He, he's well-versed in scriptures, been around it his whole life on a high level. Timothy, the apprentice of Paul, who was raised by a godly mother and grandmother, taught faith from a young age. Not Epaphroditus. He wouldn't have had that privilege. That wasn't his path. That wasn't his journey. He was an outsider. He came from outside of all of this, yet he is viewed as one of them. Paul refers to Epaphroditus as a co-worker, a fellow worker, a participant in sharing the gospel. Now, as I read that, I find this interesting since Epaphroditus doesn't hold a leadership position. He's never traveled with Paul on any of his missionary journeys. He's not been personally apprenticed by Paul. They've not worked side by side. There's no indication that he's done anything more for Paul than simply travel to Rome and deliver the money to him. He was supposed to care for Paul, but then he became ill upon arriving and he doesn't even carry out his full duty. He doesn't even do what he was sent to do. Yet Paul refers to him as a fellow worker in the gospel. Why? Well, I would suggest that even though his role was different, his role was low-key, it was a behind-the-scenes role, it was still really important. For Paul, the value of Epaphroditus' contribution to the ministry was not based on the amount of work that he did. It was not based on the type of work that he did or the degree of difficulty associated with the work that he did. Epaphroditus' willingness to carry out the mission in whatever way he could made him a partner in the gospel. And so Paul wants them to celebrate him. Paul says, you need to see this man for who he is. He's carried out a special role. Honor him when he arrives back home. Buy a whole bunch of cupcakes. Have a celebration when he gets there. You know, they could be waiting back home in the church thinking, we gave you one job. Like one job. Deliver the money and care for Paul, and you got half of it right. It didn't go as we planned. That his sickness made the trip a failure. We can't celebrate a failure. It didn't go as planned. How do you celebrate when it didn't go as planned? But Paul says, no, I want you to focus on the positive. I want you to value this person and the efforts of Epaphroditus I want you to see him not as a failure, not as someone who got half of it right, not as someone who came up short. I want you to see him as a partner in the ministry of the gospel. So when he gets home, have a party because his actions are a demonstration that he is an apprentice of Jesus, both in his character and his character now demonstrated in what he's done. We're moving right along. Sebastian was excited. There were only two points. He says, really short today. I said, don't let it fool you. Sometimes the command of Jesus to make disciples gets neglected in our lives because we're caught up in our circumstances. We're caught up in our own hardships, our pain, 
or other passions, things that matter more to us. But when we adopt a make-it-count approach to faith in our lives, we're able to take our focus miraculously off of our own circumstances and to focus our priority back on Jesus' call to make disciples, to make apprentices, to invest our lives in others as we invest in the kingdom. Paul's circumstances didn't cause him to lose sight of the value and the importance of the disciple-making mission. In fact, he takes a moment here to highlight two examples of people who've experienced that. And so as we look at this this morning, there are just two simple things. Really, I am going to keep this really simple this morning. There are two things. I think we might even be at Swiss Chalet before the Baptist today. That might happen. There are two things that I would like us to consider that I believe Paul highlights here, whether he intends to or not, I don't know, that help us understand just two of the many things that are a part of the apprentice-making process. Help us to see better. Just two little things this morning. The first is different but the same. There is more than just one path on the journey to becoming a follower of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Some of us that are here this morning were raised to go to church and believe in God at a young age. It was a part of our families growing up. And maybe the result of that is that we accepted Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and we became a follower of Jesus. Some of us came from a life and a family and a circumstances where, where God really wasn't a priority at all. God was not, non-existent in our upbringing. Some of us came to Jesus at a young age. Others of us came much later in life. Some of us came to Jesus at a young age, departed from the faith, and then came back to faith later in life. Some of us were searching to fill the emptiness. Other of us came from lives that were filled with pain and brokenness. Some of us were good people who realized we needed Jesus despite how good we were. Others of us were anything but good people. We lived lives filled with bad choices and regrets. There are many paths that brought us in this room today to the point where we became followers of Jesus. Now, I believe sometimes we misunderstand discipleship. We think that being someone who carries out the mission of making disciples, of apprenticing, is that we should seek somebody out that's like us, so that over time, through that relationship and our apprenticing of them, they'll become followers of Jesus. Now, although it's true, I believe, that having something in common with another person is a good place to start the apprenticeship journey, because that's what often brings us together. We have something in common. But I want to suggest this morning that sometimes the most effective apprenticeship happens between the most unlikely of people. Jesus and his disciples, I think, are a good example of that. I mean, who would have put a fisherman, a tax collector, and a zealot in the same small group Bible study? 
It doesn't make sense. The person may be younger or older than you are. They may have different interests than you have. They may be on a different socioeconomic level than you are. They may have a different education level than you do. Yet somehow, it really clicks because you don't have to be the same. You don't have to be the same. The truth is, many of us find discipling another person difficult because, well, we were never really discipled ourselves. So we don't have a first-time experience on what to do and what it even looks like. Yeah, you can grow up in the church, be a follower of Jesus and say, yeah, I don't remember ever being discipled. A few months ago, we were discussing discipleship and apprenticeship in our staff meeting, and that's a common occurrence for us, (laughs) comes up quite a bit. And the question was asked, I, I believe it was Pastor Mark that asked it, don't you hate it when someone asks a question that needs to be asked, but it just makes you really uncomfortable, and you just wish they didn't ask it? So he did that. Thank you for doing that. He said, who discipled you? Hmm. I had to think about that. I mean, there's no doubt. I can walk into the cemetery in my own hometown and look at the headstones and say, oh, you know, that was my Sunday school teacher. This was good. People made deposits along the way. There's no question. No question. But as I reflected on my life, I could honestly say that it took me to being in my 20s before someone really intentionally discipled me. And guess what? I had already graduated Bible college and I was on my second pastoral environment. I was a young pastor and I was discipled by my senior pastor over a period of seven years. Now, in many ways, to say we were the exact opposites would be to understate it. I swear to God that his pajamas had a tie attached to it. He was mechanical. If he was under his car, he just put coveralls over his suit and tie. I'm at the bank and the lady wants to know where I work and she goes, is that the church where the guy in the suit and tie is patching the roof? Yeah, that's us. I mean, you know, that's just who he was, and there was I. I mean, my aversion and and allergy to ties goes all the way back to there. We had nothing in common. I would talk a mile a minute, and he'd just look there and go, "Uh uh-huh, mm-hmm. Now, when he spoke, it was worth listening to. We were so different. I remember when the Blue Jays won the first World Series. I mean, you know, we're an hour and a half later in the rest of the world, in Canada, right? And the game went late because it was on, you know, U.S. television. It was a late game and it was a celebration. And I remember dragging myself in the office the next day and he goes, Blue Jays won the World Series. And I'm thinking, what? You watched the game? He goes, no, I was at the hospital dealing with an emergency and I saw it on the monitor. We were so different. And those days I could sleep in. Oh, God, give that back sometime. Past seven o'clock at least. I could sleep in. But, oh, he was up at the wee hours of the morning. We were so different. We had such little in common, almost nothing. But we were of equal soul. He saw something in me and embarked on a seven-year journey where the event where he literally passed off the leadership of the church when he left. 
Because we shared the same heart. We shared the same priorities. We shared the same vision, the same integrity. He discipled me. He apprenticed me. And my point is this. You can be different in personality. You can be different in interest. You can be different in background, but be of equal soul. And the goal of discipleship then as we engage in it is to help people on their journey to become like Jesus. Because sometimes we think discipleship is helping people become like us. I grew up with that. Someone got saved. This person, if we did it well at all, I'll attach myself to this person and I'll teach them how to dress and walk and attend and speak. And and all of a sudden, you got a mini-me going around. That's what we did. Let Let me, you know, my goal is to get people in church and then they get saved and we'll teach them how to be like us. Hmm. Bible I read says our goal should not be to get people in church. It should be to bring people to Jesus. And there is a difference, by the way. And the goal is not so that we can replicate who we are in their lives. God help us if anyone else in this world becomes like me. I heard that quiet, amen. It was quiet. Still small voice, but I heard it. God help us. We're not trying to replicate ourselves. We're not downloading us into someone else. We're downloading Jesus into somebody else as the Spirit works in that apprenticing relationship. We can be different, yet the same, because we share Christ's likeness. Secondly, the importance of feeling important. Discipleship, apprenticeship cannot exist in an environment where others are not celebrated and valued. We can talk about it all we want, but if other people are not celebrated and valued, and let me tell you, it's time for the church to move past the lip service of the fact that we think we love and accept everybody because we just don't. Right? So let's move past the lip service. If we're not going to do it, let's just stop talking about it. Why am I even talking about that? Right where everyone is celebrated and valued. See, the truth is, within all of us, all of us, there is a need. Even those of you who say, I don't have that need. Yes, you do. You're just not emotionally in touch enough to know it. Because in all of us, there's a need and a desire to be appreciated, to be valued, to be deemed to be important, to know that you matter, that you matter. Now, this need can go off the rails in a couple of ways. First, if we grew up in an environment where we lacked the affirmation that we needed, where we were made to feel less than our value, then affirmation becomes dysfunctionally important for us and becomes a motivator for our actions. I've witnessed this in the lives of others, but let me tell you, I've seen it quite a few times in my own life. Is that honest enough for you? (laughs) Seen it a few times in my own life. That what people say about us, how they view us, becomes so important. When you grow up sometimes like I did in in poverty, where everyone tells you you're never going to be anything, your life's determination is, I'm going to show you, or else you just go curl up in the corner and die. 
I didn't pick that option. What people say about us, how they view us, becomes so important. In fact, so important it can become the reason we do what we do. It can become so dysfunctional that we live for the praise and approval of others. And let me tell you, it's a long, intentional journey of the Holy Spirit ripping you apart from the deep depths of your soul to help you move past it. That's one dysfunction that sounds like only I share. The second one is, well, we go to the other extreme and we hold back praise for others. The very thing we long for in ourselves, the very thing that we know we need more than anything, we keep that from other people. Perhaps because in elevating others, somehow we feel threatened, I don't know. Perhaps we're so caught up in our own need for approval that we fail to see that need in the lives of others. My point is this. Discipleship and apprenticeship cannot exist in an environment where importance is neglected or out of balance. We'll not be able to apprentice others. We will not be able to be apprenticed by others if we are consumed with the need for personal praise. We need to find our security and approval in who God says we are, in how God sees us. Timothy was an ideal candidate for Paul to send because he didn't need the praise of men like the others needed. It set him apart. Paul encouraged the Philippian church to celebrate Epaphroditus on his return. The trip may not have gone as planned. It may have not have been perfect, but he deserved to be celebrated. The value of ministry is not based on the attention it gets or the degree of difficulty to accomplish it. Some ministry, yes, requires a certain personality, a certain training, certain giftings, But that doesn't make it more important. What I do here is no more important than what you do here. I just get paid a ton of money to do it. I hope that doesn't bother you. But it's just as important. Everything that we do for Jesus is equally important. And we need to stop looking down on ourselves and we need to stop looking down on others for the seeming little part that we play or the part that they might play and see it as less. We all have a place. We all have a part to do. We all have sacrifice to make. If we're going to make it financially, those of you who have resources are obviously going to have to give more than those who don't, but we all have to sacrifice something. If we're going to serve, some who are uberly gifted are obviously going to contribute to areas that those of us who struggle with can't. God help us if the day ever comes where you need me to be the music department. Doesn't make one more important. Everything we do for Jesus is equally important. And we need to stop looking down on ourselves and others. We have a place, a part to do, a sacrifice to make. But it's going to look different for all of us. It's not our job to assess value to it. Sometimes we need to stop doing God's job. You know, God, I know you're really busy. I'm going to take over the judging department for a while. God, I know you're really busy, but I'm going to take over the standards committee. 
God, you're really busy. I'm going to start handing out badges, evaluating who's the most important. I'll rank them for you. No, that's God's job. Our job is just to be faithful. I believe we need to rediscover the practice of celebrating and honoring one another. Folks, we all have faults. No person is perfect. No vision is perfect. There's always ways to improve things and do them better. There's no question. And guess what? Anyone can point out what needs to be improved. That doesn't take rocket science or deep insight to point out where something is flawed. But what it does take a special person to do is to see something and celebrate the good in it. Now that's a challenge. And so instead of always focusing on what could have been improved, maybe once in a while we just need to celebrate what's good. Let's choose to see and celebrate the good things. Imagine what that could do for your marriage, your church, your job, your kids, your hockey team. Let's learn to receive encouragement. Whoa. Celebrating without feeling like it's wrong. Some of us struggle with that too. I remember early in ministry, I'd preach a sermon and if I could get anywhere with it, some soul might come up to me and say, that was a good sermon, pastor. You're like, my God, what do I do with that? If I take the praise, then I'm taking it from God and then lightning's going to hit me and I'm going to die right here in the church. So you go, the glory is all God's, my brother. Over time, I just learned to say thank you. (laughs) Don't think I'm unspiritual if you come up and say, that was a good word today, pastor. Thank you. I'm not taking God's praise. I'm not taking God's praise at all. I'm not robbing God. When we celebrate others, we're celebrating God. Do we understand that? When we're celebrating one another, we're celebrating God. And when we're attacking and diminishing each other, we're attacking and diminishing God. How we treat other people is a reflection of how we feel about God. True discipleship. True discipleship. An environment where true discipleship is happening, apprenticeship is unfolding, sees the importance of investing in every person, sees the value of the contribution that every single person could make to the kingdom and make celebrating every little moment and every person a priority. Priority. Worship team, I'm going to ask you if you would please come back. A make-it-count approach to faith creates and promotes an environment where apprentice-making remains the priority. A make-it-count approach to faith helps us understand that the goal of discipleship is to help people on their journey of becoming like Jesus, not like us. A make-it-count approach to faith helps us understand that we can be different yet the same because we share equal soul. A make-it-count approach to faith helps us carry out the mission of Jesus of making apprentices without relying on the praise of others. And a make-it-count approach to faith helps us 
to carry out the mission of Jesus of making apprentices without neglecting the need to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of others, even in the little moments and the little things we celebrate. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And we're going to open the altar this morning for prayer for those of you who may be here and uh, you'd like someone to pray for you. We want to be able to do that this morning. But in this moment of worship, because I don't believe God is finished with us yet. This is not, God doesn't reach this point and go, well, listen, you know what? I'm going to drift off. I got other things to do. You guys are done. Now, this is the moment where the Holy Spirit can do some of the deepest work in our lives. As we reflect and repent and just yield ourselves afresh to God. And so I just encourage you to do that this morning. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? From what I've heard from the word of God this morning, what are you saying to me? How does this affect me? How does this change me? How does this help me to embrace what you want to accomplish in this world more? Take these moments to do that as well. Lord, as we bring conclusion to this moment, we've been singing some words that are life-altering. I give you my life. I live for you alone. God, I pray that those will not just be easy words to say, but they'll be a determination and goal of our lives. That every day we'll learn what it means to give you more and more of who we are. That every day we would learn more and more how to live for you and you alone. Lord, would you remind us that sometimes we think that we're living to make a living. We're living to make money. We're living to raise families. We're living to buy homes and cars. And we're living to do all these different things. But help us to establish that the first and foremost, we are living to worship you, to honor you, to live for you alone. And God, would you help us by your spirit to realign the challenges, the obstacles in our lives, so that by your spirit, we might be able to get to that place where you truly are Lord and Savior of our lives. Every part, every place, every detail. Father, I thank you for this group that you've brought together that forms the family of this faith community. I thank you that you brought us here from a lot of different places, a lot of different paths, a lot of different life experiences, but we're all here. And I pray that you would, as much as we are different, help us to understand that we strive to be the same, equal soul same passion, same priorities, same vision, same determination, all centered in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we leave this place, would you protect us, watch over us? 
Would you provide for us and meet our needs? Would you care for our families? Would you help us to love and serve and share? Would you help us to be who you want us to be? Will you help us to engage in life with others in a way that you, by your spirit, are able to shape and change lives for your kingdom, for your glory? We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.